Velkommen til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Bak Hansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i Den Sorte Diamant. De internationale menneskerettigheder er et afgørende middel for at skabe en retfærdig verden, hvor man kan udleve sin seksualitet og bekæmpe undertrykkelse. Det fortæller den marokkanske forfatter Leila Slimani i denne udgave af Live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Sammen med journalist Tora Leifer diskuterer hun litteratur som et våben i kampen for ligestilling, intimitetens trange kår i fattige hjem og hvordan et frit seksualliv er en afgørende forudsætning for et hvert menneskes frihed. Slimani og Leifer taler derudover om frankofonien, der er en sammenslutning af de mange fransktalende lande i verden. Sammen beskriver de frankofoniens udfordringer samt dens rolle i demokratiets udvikling i hele verden. God fornøjelse. You say from the start of this book that sociologists or journalists could have written another kind of book, but you wrote this book. What was your aim with the sex et mensonge, sex and lies? Hello to you all. Thank you for coming here. <laughs> um, uh, as it was said before, when I was covering the Arab Spring in Tunisia, I was very surprised what, by what women and men told me. I can remember that they spoke a lot about their problems, about unemployment, about violence, about police brutality, but they spoke a lot about sex. And we had a lot of conversation about sex. And they used to tell me that even if their life was very difficult because of those economic and political problems, life was difficult also because it was so hard to have intimacy and to find a place for tenderness, for love and for sexuality. And in Morocco, actually, it was the same. Um, you know, in Morocco, only 0.2% of the, the youngsters, people between 18 and 25, have a place of their own, live alone. Which means that um, the great, great majority of youngsters live with their parents, their aunts, their grandparents. They can, uh, they sleep with their brothers and sisters. They can hear their own parents making love when they are sleeping. There is no intimacy. And when there is no intimacy, there is no place for you to invent yourself, to be alone, to dream to imagine what life could be. And there is no place for love, of course. You have to, to, to hide, you have to find somewhere to go with someone and you have always to organize yourself if you want to, to make love. So, of course, it's very difficult to build a real erotism and tenderness. So, I was obsessed by those themes when I was covering the Arab Spring. And then I wrote my first novel, and it's a novel about sex and about sex addiction. 
I went to Morocco to promote the book, and it was like tonight, a conference, a lecture in the National uh, Library of Morocco, which is royal too, uh, actually. <laughs> and um, at the end of the conference, I went to have a, a, a drink a, in the bar, and a woman came to me and she said, uh, oh, I would lo love to have a discussion with you and to tell you about your novel, because I loved your novel. So we spoke, and then she began to tell me about her own life. And she told me very, very intimate details. And she remind me, reminded me how difficult it was to have a sexuality in a country where sexual intercourse is forbidden when you're not married, where homosexuality is forbidden, where abortion is forbidden. Because I was living in France for 15 years, so I had completely forgotten what it was. And that's why I decided to write this book, because I wanted at that time to give a voice to those women. And, you know, it was um, years before the, the Me Too movement, but actually I already had the intuition that the first step for emancipation of women was to break the silence, because silence is probably the most powerful, powerful tool of patriarchy and patriarchal system. You shut up. You don't tell. And you have to be ashamed because what you do is wrong, what you do is dirty, what you do is bad, so you shut up. And I c remember that when those women were speaking with me at the beginning, they were like this. And the more they speak, the more they, they stand up and they were like proud of themselves. And I'm sure that when you say I and when you speak, you get conscious of the fact that you're a subject and not only an object. And you say, I think it's such a beautiful story that you met these women on your book tour and you write something like um, the novel magically establishes a very intimate relationship between the writer and the reader and shatters the barriers of embarrassment and mistrust. So that magical power of the novel is what made these women come up to you and speak. Exactly, because, you know, I think that when you are a writer, a novelist especially, in a certain way you spend hours with your reader, even if you're not physically with him, um, you spend hours with him and you, you share an intimacy. And many women told me, um, when I read your book, I had the feeling that you could understand me and that you can understand me without judging me. Because if you're able to explore for months, for weeks, the, the soul of someone, and if you're uh, able to, to, to tell the story of a character like Adele, the character of my first novel, it means that you can understand me. So the relationship between a, a reader and a writer is very particular. You know, it's very weird because uh, when I wrote this first novel, I was very surprised by the fact that at the end of conference, it's very usual that people come to me and they tell me things that are sometimes very, uh, very strange, very intimate, and sometimes myself, I don't know what to do with what people are confessing me, but I don't know why they, they trust me. Maybe they shouldn't because I'm going to use it in another novel, but yeah. they do. We know from different uh, cases that it can be very difficult to trust a writer, yeah. actually, like the case with Espedal in Norway right now, or many other writers. Um, you talk to all these women, you talk to a couple of, of other a sociologists, um, a doctor, a policeman, and I remember the policeman saying, 
In Morocco, there's no place for love. And, uh, well, there's a lot of sex going on, maybe hidden sex and a lot of thinking about sex, but there is no place for love. I think that what he meant is that there is no public place for love, because of course there is love, and there is a lot of love, but this love is hidden, and this love is not expressed as much as it should be. And um, I think that love is not valued by the society, by the, um, by the education, by uh, the authorities as much as it should be. And I think that love is a very, very important value in a, in a society. And, um, but I must say, and I wrote it in the book, that tenderness is very important in, in Morocco. What I call Hanan, Hanan in Arabic, and a very famous sociologist um, called Fatima Mernissi wrote a lot about this. There is a real sense of tenderness, of solidarity, tenderness especially towards children, towards old people, towards fragile uh, persons. So there is tenderness, but concerning love, which when, and when I say love, I mean passion, erotic passion, desire, um, I must say that people don't dare to express this love. Mm. Most of these people or these women have not told their stories to anyone else. Um, and as you said, silence is the norm. So do you view the act of speaking and of writing, uh, or the words themselves, as a kind of weapon? Of course, of course. Um, you know, if, if I didn't, it would be very sad for me as a writer to consider that it's not a weapon. Of course, I consider it a weapon or every day of, of my life would be pointless because I, I tend to fight for, for them and for their rights and for the, the values I, I believe in. And I think that actually it's a very, very strong weapon because, you know, when I wrote the book, I was very moved by all the letters uh, I received after. And the, the, the people was telling me, I read my story. What I read, I can tell you that it's true because I, I had exactly the same experience. And I wanted to thank you because no one had told me that I was not alone. And that's exactly why we, we write novels or nonfiction. Uh, we write to say you're not alone or please tell me that I'm not alone. When I write a novel, when I try to express uh, a feeling or a secret, in a certain way I'm trying to tell or to ask my, my reader, please tell me that you feel the same. That's exactly why we, we write, to fight loneliness, to fight, um, to fight this idea that we would all be different, that every culture has to, to stay in her own borders. No, we fight, for, we, we write to defend universality of feelings, the universality of emotions. Mm. How did you go about it when a woman, for instance, comes up to you in the bar at the hotel or at the Royal Library? You can't tape it uh, and you can't write while she talks to you. How did you go about conserving I make her drink a lot, so... No, I'm kidding. Um, no, you know, I was very, actually, very, very focused and what was uh, very... I was very focused and very silent. Uh, you know, I had a very, very good teacher when I was a journalist, and he always said, 
the secret of a good interview is to shut up. You sh shut up because when you shut up, people they are very embarrassed. So they start talking because they are so embarrassed that they're telling you what they don't want to tell you at the beginning. So you just look at them like a stupid person and you wait and people are so embarrassed that they speak. So I was just very silent and smiling and very focused to remember what they told me. <laughs> you won't help me at this little game. <laughs> <laughs> it won't work with you. No. <laughs> no, you're too professional. But that's quite funny because it is a sort of game of power. Who breaks the silence first? Yeah. yeah. Um, when people come up to you and say, that's all very well, writing about sex and all that stuff, but what about human rights? What about poverty? What about freedom? What about oppression? What about freedom of expression? What do you say to those people? That all this is linked. That when you don't have the right to dispose of your own, when you don't own your own body, when you don't have the right to have a sexuality, you are oppressed. And this is, and I tell them that uh, sexual rights are human rights. And I tell them that oppression of women is, uh, first of all, a sexual oppression, that sexuality has always been used to oppress women. The right for abortion, the right of having a sexuality, the right of losing your virginity, the right of not being uh, treated as a whore or as a bad woman or as an adultery, adultery woman. All those fights were sexual fights, actually. So I tell them that all this is linked, and of course, I must say that there is a huge difference in a country like Morocco, but it's also true for Algeria or Tunisia, between rich people and poor people. Rich people have actually the same sexuality as in Paris, London, or Copenhagen. When you have a car, you have a house, you have the possibility to travel. If you have a problem and you need to get an abortion or you need to get um, a surgery for Imen, for virginity, you can go to Switzerland or, or, or France. So you have actually the same sexuality. But if you are poor, if you live with your parents, grandparents, sisters and brothers, you don't have a, a place of your own, a room of, of your own, like Virginia Woolf said, you don't have the possibility to have this sexuality. And um, even if you're married, you know, even for married couple, it's very, very difficult because of economic problems to find an apartment and to have this intimacy to build uh, a family. So for me, all this is, is linked, so you, you can't put a sort of hierarchy between those problems. All those problems goes together. Mm. And the question of class and poverty is very, uh, very imminent in this book, because, yeah. as you say, if you have a large house, uh, you can do it in the privacy of your house. And if you do it in a car or in a park and you, there is a policeman, you have, uh, you have the banknotes, you have money to pay the policeman. You have money and you have a name. You, yes. you can say, my name is that, and the policeman is going to say, oh, sorry, uh, sorry to bother you. Continue, please. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's so great that you mention now to have a room of one's own, and you mention Virginia Woolf. Uh, we will talk later about your novel, uh, Chanson douce, Vaucassin. Uh, because uh, the protagonist, the, the woman who is the nurse of these children, she has never had a room of her own. And that really makes you think, 
uh, about Virginia Woolf's words. I think also of the great Danish writer Tove Ditlevsen, who is now coming out in Penguin in modern classics, who write in her memoirs about you know, living in a two-room flat with brother, mother, father, never having a room of your own, not even having a drawer of your own where you can put your writing, your diary, anything. Your secret. It's your secret. Yeah, I've always thought that you, we should... Um, my, mother, my mother always told me, and my father also, you have the right to have secret. And I think that it's a very, very important right to have secret. Mm -hmm. And not because you have to hide, but because you have a little place of your own, a little drawer where you can put letters, uh, love letters or whatever you want, and no one is going to touch this. It's yours. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very, very important the, to have the right of having secret. Yes. And in these times with uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook, please remember everybody, you have to have a secret. Don't put it out, all, all out there. Yeah, I think that secret. there is no erotism without secret. There, yeah. is no, uh, there is no novels and no fiction without secret. So as a, as a writer, I'm, uh, I, I'm defending secret a lot. Yeah. In a, in a month, the Declaration, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is going to be 70 years old. Uh, so we, as a world, have abided, or should have abided, by this Declaration of Human Rights for 70 years. And we talked about it just before. Um, a lot of the articles in the beginning of the Declaration are about sexual rights in a way, and the right of your own body. Article 3, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. Article 4, no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Article 5, no one shall be subjected to torture, or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. And if you are a woman all over the world, you are not always entitled to have your own life, your own liberty, your own security, or uh, to be free from degrading treatment. Of course, but I think that what is important in the, this text is universality, yes. no one. It is not written no one, but it depends on its religion, its culture, mm. its skin color, the, the, the place where he lives, the, what he believes in, no. We don't care about that. And that's maybe the most important thing in my book. What I'm trying to explain also to the Moroccan public is that I, I don't accept the cultural argument. I don't accept when people tell me, oh, okay, that's very nice what you're telling, but that's for Western countries. It doesn't concern us because our tradition is different, because our culture is different. But rape is not a culture. Violence is not a culture. Harassment is not a culture. Violence toward homosexual, it doesn't make a culture. A culture is what we do of it. We build our culture every day. It's not something that is uh, frozen and that we have to, to respect forever. No, it's something that we have to, to, to build every day and to make, we have to make uh, changes. You know, I was speaking and with, uh, for instance, with Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and she told me that when she went to Nigeria and she was speaking about feminism, many men told her, how dare you speak about feminism? Feminism is not African. Mm -hmm. And as African, we don't accept this kind of, uh, of speech. So I think that the most important is to fight for universality. Uh, I don't want to uh, be judged and be treated um, 
because uh, in my passport, uh, on my passport it's written that I'm Moroccan. I want to be treated as a human being mm. and I want to have my dignity as a human being in France, in Morocco or anywhere else. And I think that's a very important fight against Islamists, against all those kinds of, uh, yeah. of people. Yeah. And at the same time we see Harvey Weinstein in um, Los Angeles, um, we see the whole Me Too movement uh, this uh, summer. There was a professor at the Royal Danish Academy of Arts who left his uh, post as professor uh, uh, very amiably in an amiable agreement, but everyone knew it was because there had been cases of sexual harassment. So we see these things not only in Maghreb uh, of or in Morocco, we see them all over the world. In every country in the world where there are men and women, we see men abusing their power. Yes, of course, I, I, and I write it in the book, misogyny is probably the most uh, universal thing in, in the world. So there is, I, I was always convinced of, of that, and in a certain way I was uh, happy that people was, m were more, more aware of that when the, the Harvey Weinstein uh, affair arrived, because in France, for instance, people were like, wow, it can be a very glamorous, even if Weinstein is not glamorous, but it is in, in a glamorous context, but uh, a white man, rich man, can be a, a man who is so violent and so brutal towards women. And you know, one year before, I, I think, I don't know if you remember what happened in Cologne with the, 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 the in the New Year's Eve, yeah. with the, all the, the harassment of... Uh, yeah, Cologne in, in Germany, Köln, uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, men from uh, immigrants, men were accusing, were accused of uh, raping and harassing German women, and um, during that time, a lot of paper were written, and it was a little bit racist, and people were telling they are rapists because they are Arab and because they are Muslim in a certain way, and in the United States, it's the same. If you read what people write about black men. Black man has always been represented as a violent man, a man who wants to rape the white woman, and he is a dangerous man, so we have to protect society against it. So um, I think that the Me Too movement and the Weinstein uh, scandal was very important because it um, helped people recognize the fact that violence is universal and has nothing to do with religion or color of the skin. It has only to do with the patriarchal system and the fact that many men think that when you have power, it's normal to use it against women. Mm. And even though you don't harass women sexually, you can still, in our time, in our societies, be degrading towards women. I just found two quotes. Um, the great Danish architect Henning Larsen, one of Dan Denmark's greatest architects, said 25 years ago, women can never be great architects. <laughs> that was in the early 90s. And now he's dead, and now a woman is head of Henning Larsen Architects. So, um, but well. you know, I, I won the Prix Goncourt, and um, uh, one of the Goncourt said, um, if a woman is a genius, it means she's a man. <laughs> and, and so when I won the, the Goncourt, I was very happy because I was thinking maybe in his grave he was like very, very furious that uh, an Arab woman would win the, the Goncourt. Yeah. It was like a nice revenge. I, one second quote. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
One second quote, there's a Danish member of parliament, um, Joachim B. Olsen, he said, two or three years ago, he said, it is an innate mechanism that makes women prefer to stay at home with their children while the men work. Nice. That's a Danish member of parliament for you, yeah? Nice quote, we don't have to comment uh, on that. You talked about the police, you talked about what's legal, what's not legal, and um, practically sex within marriage is legal, and everything else in Morocco is covered by the penal code. Exactly. So everything else you do, if you're an unmarried woman, if you're a homosexual, if you, well, anything is just plain illegal. Exactly. But of course, everyone has a sexual life. And yeah. of course, police has other things to do than chasing everyone who is having, having sex. So people are having sex, but in a certain way, in the bottom of their heart or of their head, they know that something can happen. That if um, there is a problem, if a neighbor is not happy, if the man who is uh, a witness, enfin, le gardien of the, the, the building is not happy, he can denounce you. So you always feel a threat mm. uh, over your head. So you're not arrested in the majority of the case, but you feel this threat. And also when you're young, when you're poor, And when you go with your girlfriend to have a, like a orange juice uh, in a cafe and you want to take her hand, a policeman can come and say, what are you doing? Mm. You don't have the right to be here and to be with this woman. What are you going to do? Are you going to have sex? So you feel very humiliated. Mm. And this humiliation, I think, is um, terrible because those men will never feel that they are a real citizen and they are truly respected by the state because they can be humiliated in their own flesh, in their intimacy, in what is the most intimate in life. Mm. And in your mind, sex and love becomes related to shame and fear exactly. and uh, humiliation. Yeah. Exactly. And you also describe how society has been evolving in some ways and uh, the role of women has changed. There are a lot more women in society than there were 50 years ago, but what hasn't changed are the laws. So there's a big, a growing gap between legislation and reality. Exactly. Exactly, and there's a, a sociologist um, I, I interviewed, Abdesamad Dialmi, and that's exactly what he was telling me. And he was telling me, actually, that it was very dangerous. It's very dangerous to, to live in a society where the norm and the, the real life, the practice, is so, so different, where there is a, a so big gap between the, the both of, um, between the two, because actually you don't... How can you respect the law and respect the state if every day what you are doing is illegal and mm. you know that it's illegal? So what the law means when your life is like it? It means nothing. It's pointless, useless. So the, also the relationship you have with authority, the relationship you have with policemen is very ambiguous because there is a lot of corruption. And as I say in the book, sex and money are 
very, very linked. They, you pay the cops if you want to have sex in a, in a forest or near a beach. You pay a prostitute if you want uh, to, to have sex. You pay also if you want to, to get married. If you're rich, that's no problem. You can get married and you can divorce and you can have sex. You can be a homosexual. So money and sex, are, it's a very, very important thing also in, in Morocco. Yes, and as you say, how can you respect the law uh, if that is the case? These paragraphs in the law are not really enforced or in, are enforced um, differently. Uh, differently. Yeah. So how, what about the, the parts of the law that say that you can't kill anyone? What about the parts of law that say you must uh, drive must on the left side or the right side? Or it's easier to have sex than to kill someone. It is, but um, I just mean if you can't really trust one part of the law, why should you trust yeah, the, the other part? Yeah, that's that's a problem. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. And I think that's a very very um, bad idea for the authority to be so, so stubborn about about this because I think that it's going to uh, go against them in, mm. in maybe in some some years because citizens are going to tell them actually you don't enforce the law and as I say in the book the most conservative part of the society they want those laws to be enforced mm. and now they are even stronger because they say to the Islamists and to all the people who believe in those kinds of ideas look at the, the authorities they are weak they don't enforce this the, the laws they are not virtuous they are not moral and we need to put more morality in this country and we need to go and chase those young people who are having sex so it's very hypocritical and mm. very very ambiguous and dangerous yeah which one of the stories which one of the women touched you the most I think that the story that touched me the most was the story of Malika. She told me about her abortion. We were in Agadir. Malika, she's a doctor, very well-educated woman. She lives alone. She's in, around 40. Yeah, she's yeah. around 40. She has never been married. She had no children. And uh, she lives in Agadir. It's a little town in the south of uh, Morocco. And she had an affair with a man who didn't want to marry her and uh, she got pregnant and she decided to get an abortion. Because she's a doctor, it was not that difficult for her to get an abortion. I have to say that abortion is not legal in Morocco, but there is 600 abortions per day, per day. And there is uh, 24 babies abandoned per week. Mm. Babies that you can find in garbage. Every Morocco had a Moroccan citizen have had seen a baby in a garbage one day. And that's my, my experience. So it's something very common. And so she decided to go to see a doctor. We were speaking about money b before. A lot of doctors make a lot of money uh, mm. thanks to uh, illegal abortion. So she goes to the doctor and there are four women in the, um, uh, in the office of the, the doctor and one of the women is a prostitute and she's laughing and she's saying, oh, he doesn't want to do anesthesia with me because he said that I have to suffer for what I did. So it's normal that he's going to make an abortion on me without anesthesia. And the other woman is very shy. She looks very poor in her jilaba and she has a, a scarf. And she's asking the secretary of the doctor, please, can you tell me how much it is? And she says the price. And she says, oh, I don't have enough. I will come next week. And the secretary tells her, no, next week it would be even more expensive. Mm. 
So the woman left. And Malika told me, I got my abortion, but then I was haunted by this woman because I asked myself, what did she do? Maybe she had to prostitute herself to pay for her abortion. Maybe she was wandering in the streets because in Morocco being a single mother is a, a hell, a nightmare. So or maybe my, she committed suicide. Yeah, maybe she committed suicide. So myself, I was absolutely haunted by, by this woman. Or maybe, you know, she went to see those women who use uh, uh, potions or needles mm. or yes. terrible thing, and maybe she died of this. So I was haunted by her. And um, I've always been haunted by all those women who have to experience this loneliness, this despair, uh, when you can't get this abortion and you have to prostitute or to kill yourself. Yeah. I think there's another case in the book about a woman who has an extra uterus um, um, yeah. grossesse. But she's not married. No, exactly. And the question for the authorities, for the police and the doctor is, should we save her or should we denounce her and get her, and get her into jail? Because she can only have this uh, pregnancy um, as a celibatarian, uh, that means she must go to jail. Exactly. Yeah. And it's more important to denounce her than to help her. I think um, one thing that's, that's funny, um, there's a woman who says in the book, as an adolescent I realized, maybe it's even you who said, as an adolescent I realized that my sex was everybody's business. Society held, uh, held rights over it. And my sex here means uh, what in English you would call my private parts. But in a society like this, they are not private. They are public uh, exactly. domain yeah. in a way. I think that's very interesting. The way, uh, well, interesting, it's, it's really horrible. The way everybody has an opinion and uh, you know, a right a to power. know everything about yeah. your, your private parts. Exactly, everybody has a, a, a power and uh, your virginity is not something that you own or something that is intimate or something that you choose to lose or not. It's something that concerns everyone. Everyone has something to say about your sexuality. You should do this and you shouldn't do that and you can have a, ch a child in this condition but not in that. So, of course, you don't own your own body and as a woman, I think that you can't... Um, consider yourself as a real citizen if you don't consider that you own your body because people are deciding for you. And for me, if we want that women get more and more involve, involved in our societies, we have to give them the possibility to own their own body. Their own body. Yes. And another problem is ignorance. Um, I remember Jor. Uh, an elegant young woman who talks to you about her discovery of having a clitoris. When she was 18 years old, for a week I did nothing but masturbate. It was like having made the discovery of the century. It's free and you can do it all by yourself. <laughs> so, uh, well, she was lucky in a way because she did discover her clitoris even though she was 18 years old, but there is a really a massive ignorance everywhere about what is a body, what is a human body, a, a woman's body, but I guess it's the same for the men too. No one is told anything. Yeah, of course, there is no sexual education. There is um, 
an education that is given just for the the contraception. We yeah. tell people that they can take the, the pills or the, the condoms, but that's it. There is no education concerning um, erotism, love, pleasure. Pleasure is not valued at all. We never speak about that. Um, women speak a lot about sex when they are together and we, I, I come from a country with what we call la, uh, the culture of hammam, which means women together naked and they speak a lot of bat about sex, they make fun of their husband or their lovers and they have a lot of tricks and they can tell you how to do if you want to make a man to be totally mad about you and kill himself and everything and actually they are pretty successful. And, uh, no, no, uh, that's true. Moroccan women can be very, very good uh, on on that field. But now, young people are they they are more educated by the internet, mm. by the porn industry. Uh, so it's not like the old times. Um, it's a sort of paradox. But uh, actually, I think that the generation maybe of my parents and the generation of my grandparents were talking about sex more freely than the new generation, because the new generation is more urban, more uh, uh, on the internet, on the, the, the mm. screens and the computers, and less talking to each other and with the, their mothers and with the, the friends. Yeah. And you write about how social media may have given a larger freedom of, ex well, no, not freedom, but a larger possibility of expression mm. and sharing th thoughts. But you also write that I think Morocco is the fifth largest consumer of the porn in the world. Yeah, and the first one is Saudi Arabia. Mm. And it's very, it's very funny because during Ramadan, uh, you know, during Ramadan, you don't have the right to to eat, to smoke, and to have sex uh, from the uh, from, from dawn to sunset. Yeah, from yes. dawn to sunset. And the exact minute of sunset, the first research on Google on Saudi in Saudi Arabia is porn. You point immediately. That's so. That's so sad. I think, because it's not only about frustration. It's something that you need to consume. This thing that is forbidden. And if you're on your computer, it means that you're not really having sex yourself. So that's very, very sad. And. Uh, Porn has, um, uh, I think, now for the young generation, a lot, a lot of influence, mm. and there is this culture of the performance. I have to do, I have to have sex like this, and I have to show that I'm a man. Or and for women, it's the same. When you see the way um, and prostitute, they told me that a lot. And the the, the prostitute who mm. I interviewed, she said, men they want to make love like in a porn movie, and uh, they, she 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 looked at, at them and she said. They are ridiculous mm. trying to have sex like uh, like porn stars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just before you talked about the New Year's Eve uh, riots in Cologne and a couple of other German cities a couple of years ago, and um, in the book you mention your colleague Kamel Daoud. My friend. Yeah. Your friend Kamel Daoud from Algeria, who was here like six months ago, more or less, in this very room, um, and I talked to him and um, uh, not here on stage, but I talked to him anyway when he was here. And um, he told me about how uh, French and German intellectuals from the cozy universities and faculties mm -hmm. accused him of um, 
you know, of siding with the Islamophobes and with the xenophobes uh, in European politics. So, and, and you anticipate the same kind of critic might be directed against you. Oh, but by talking like this about what really happens, you go the the you go with the right wing, you go with the xenophobes, etc. And you also in the book have a very, very good response to what you will say to those European intellectuals if they say things like that to you. So, what is your response? I tell them go in Moroccan prison and go see homosexual in prison because they are homosexual. Go in clinics, see women getting abortion with needles and dying because of, of this. Go and see and speak to those women and tell me that it doesn't exist and that it's not worth it fighting for them. But you know, I think it's very interesting because people like Kamel Daoud or me or all the intellectuals from uh, Maghreb and from the Muslim world, it's very difficult for us because when we are in Europe criticizing uh, this, those situations, people are telling us you should shut up because people are going to get even more racist and you're going to get votes for the extreme right. When we go in our countries, they say you're a traitor because you defend Western ideas and what you want is to um, get more famous in, in those countries and you don't really care about your country. So everyone is considering that we're not sincere. But actually, in, when we say that, we forget what is very important and what is very important is the people I'm talking about. I don't care about myself. You know, I have a fine life. I, I write, I do what I want to do and I'm a free woman and I'm very lucky to be, to be one. And I don't really care about the critics people are telling about me. What I care about is the rights of homosexual in Morocco. What I care about is the right for abortion and the right of, for everyone to have a safe and chosen sexuality. For the rest, I really don't care. They can say whatever they want about me. I just want them, if they believe in the values I believe in, to fight with me, even if they hate me. Let's leave aside that book and uh, go to our next subjects. We have two subjects left. Uh, the last one will be the novel that is already out in Danish, Vogesang or Chanson Douce. But let's talk about the Francophonie. And I don't know if everybody knows that there are actually 300 million people in the world speaking French. And because uh, of uh, the population uh, demographics in Africa, for instance, uh, by the year 2050, we expect 700 million people in the world to be speaking French. Yes, so maybe French is going down in, uh, in Denmark because it's not taught in the schools and in the DC, uh, which is really a pity, but it's really on the rise worldwide. A year ago, President Macron uh, appointed you his personal representative to the Francophonie, um, to the international organization, the international cooperation between French-speaking countries. And I saw that you said uh, to the magazine, uh, to the magazine uh, Jeune Afrique, that you wanted to make the Francophonie less old hat. Um, what did you mean by that? You know, Francophonie doesn't have a very good image in France and um, over the world, and I can completely understand why. 
um, a lot of countries, and my country, Morocco, we speak French because of colonization. It's something that we gain from colonization. But you have different way of looking at that. Some people are telling you we are victims of the colonization and uh, the fact that we speak French is not a choice. So now we should quit. Uh, we should stop speaking French and we should go back to our real languages, to our true languages. And uh, the fact that France is still wanting to promote French language is another way to colonize, mm. uh, to neo-colonize our countries. <coughs> but you have other uh, people who would say, like the, 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 the Algerian writer Katab Yassin, or like um, Leopold Sandar Senghor, the Senegalese poet, who said, actually, we are, in, in a certain way, in this war, in this suffering, in this terrible time that colonization were, was, we had French, and French was also a tool for us to defend our independence, to defend our emancipation, to defend freedom. And you have now wonderful writers uh, in French, but Algerian, Senegalese from Haiti, from Co Congo, and, every, and many, other, many mm. other countries. But it is true that for many, many years, Francophonie was used um, by France to uh, continue having relationship with uh, ancient colony and that the real promotion of, of French, the uh, real promotion of uh, those uh, writers, artists, dancers, um, singers, was not really, really the priorities of francophonie. And I think it should be. Uh, 84 countries are members, not only old colonies of France or Belgium or Canada, but, but also countries like um, Greece or Armenia, uh, other countries that have never been colonized by France, but for historical reasons have used French as a, an academic language or... Uh, administration language or as an international lingua franca to speak with other countries. Um, at the summit of the, of the Francophonie, which took place in Yerevan in Armenia a month ago, uh, President Macron called the Francophonie a family, a very diverse family, but a family, he said. Um, is it a, a, a family and, and yeah, a family with a lot of fights and a lot yeah. of uh, screaming and a, and a lot of problems, like every every family. But yes, I think it is. Um, you know, it's very moving, I must say, when you are in a room and you're discussing of, a, for instance, a cultural program, education program, or a program for women, and you have in front of you Canada, um, Louisiana, La Louisiane in the United States, Congo, Burundi, uh, Egypt, Morocco, and we all speak the same language. Mm. We all speak French. We all have uh, wonderful writers in French. We all know some poems in French. And different French, because I must say that there is no French language. Mm. There, there are French languages. You don't speak the same French in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, or in Quebec, or in Guyane, or in Haiti. And I think that it's what is wonderful with the French language. It's very plastic. 
it's um, it's um, it modifies itself uh, considering the in, in function of the geography of the weather of the the accent of, of mm. people when you are in Haiti it's very poetic the way people speak uh, speak French in Congo uh, images and metaphor are so beautiful and so funny so I think also it's very very important to um, to promote that, to promote the differences, the different way we speak French. Yes, and that's what uh, Macron said in Yerevan also, he said... Of course I told him. Yes. <laughs> Sorry? I told him to say that. That's good. You're, a, you're very clever. That's really good. Uh, he, but he, he did say that in a nice way. He said, the French language does not belong to anyone among us, but it is the property of us all. It has liberated itself from its tie to the French nation in order to welcome all imaginations, he said. And he also stressed that it's a cultural community and it has the power of being a political community or a, a force of change, he said. Uh, in Yerevan, he said, the francophonie has to be feminist. Yeah, it has to fight against obscurantism and fight for the rights of women all over the world. So that is really cool, not just to celebrate the old poets, but to use French as a common yeah. instrument of change. And you know, uh, I think that on that topic, it's probably not the speech of uh, Macron that was the most important, but the speech of the President Issoufou of Niger. He's the president of a very, very, very poor country, one of the poorest countries in the world. It's a Muslim country. It's in the Sahel. Mm. They have nothing. Women are having seven... There is a, a, approximately seven children per woman. The situation of women is terrible. There, there is also the problem of excision, you know, so sexual mutilation of uh, of women. And this man, who now it's the end of uh, of his um, of his government, and he's not going to run again. So I think that he he felt maybe more free to say what he had to say, and to see a man, an African man, a Muslim man in this jilaba saying. Uh, francophonie has absolutely to get involved in se uh, the, the fight against sexual m uh, mutilation, scholarization of women and little girls, protecting women from uh, sexual violence. So in front of Egyptian, Mauritanian and all this uh, assembly, he could fight for those things and it was very very moving and that's why uh, it's important to um, meet with other people from the francophonie because you can hear different voices and you can see in French, in French language, people uh, embodying those, uh, those convictions and defending those convictions. Yeah. And actually, Saudi Arabia wanted to seek admission to the Francophonie, but it has withdrawn its application. Isn't that so great? So sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, I think another idea that you planted in Macron uh, may be the fact that he launched the idea of a great international congress of uh, francophone uh, writers, which is, he said, the first uh, ever since the organization of the francophonie was created 48 years ago. So a meeting, a congress of uh, great writers and publishers of the French language all over the world. Um, what is it you, um, you envisage will come out of this congress? Two things. Um, the first thing, the idea is to um, be inspired a little bit by the pen club. 
So the idea is that in every continent we have francophone authors who can immediately um, uh, respond to a situation uh, when there is a, a journalist in prison, uh, a writer in prison, or a political situation, a problem uh, concerning democracy or whatever. He can immediately call his the other francophone writers from US, France, mm. or anywhere, and they can together fight and get involved in the, uh, against this. Uh, this situation, so I think it's very important. It's important also that those writers will um, be like, uh, I don't know how to say in English, une vigie. They will be there to always to criticize also the, the uh, international organization of, of francophonie, to make uh, the political leaders aware of the problem of the population, aware of the democratical problem, because of course we have to be um, conscious of the fact that Africa had a, has a lot of, of problem with uh, undemocratic governments. So I think that writers have to get more involved, so it would be impossible for the uh, uh, international organization of Francophonie to forget about all those problems. And the other field that is very important to be also less expensive. Uh, for instance, my book, uh, my book at uh, Gallimard, when it arrives in Morocco, it's the same price as in Paris. Mm -hmm. And of course, Moroccan people, they can't afford a, a, a book that is so expensive. So they go on the internet and the, they find the, the book on, on internet illegally. So that's a big, a big problem in the francophone uh, yeah. area. Great. And when will that Congress take place, do you think? I think in Tunis in two years. Yeah. In the next summit, we mm. will uh, launch it. Let us round this part, uh, uh, um, round it off with uh, a little bit about uh, the act of reading, because I, I know that you, you like the pleasure of, of writing, but I know that you're, always, uh, you're also a very, very avid reader. What do you get from reading? You know, when I was uh, when I was a, a child and then a, a teenager, I was living in in Rabat, and Rabat was very very small town, and I must say very boring. <laughs> and uh, I was living in a house that was very far from the the, the, the center the, the center of the town, so it was very difficult uh, to to go to the cinema. So I spent most of the time at home, and I was reading all the time. And um, I can remember that even if I was in Rabat, and uh, at that time I hadn't traveled a lot, I knew nothing except Rabat and the countryside where was my grandparents. I was reading Tolstoy and I could feel that I was Russian and I was a, a Russian aristocrat <laughs> and I was feeling falling in love and I was having so many adventures and then I was reading Jack London and I was American looking for gold and I was going to be rich and I was a boy and I was a girl and I was old and I was young and I was in love and I was desperate and I was committing suicide and so many things was happening to me even if I was in my little room in Rabat in this very boring town. So it bring me everything, life, freedom, love, passion, everything. You also have an advice, I think, for parents. Um, you don't have any uh, screens in your no. house. Your children should read. 
They read, but they have nothing to do but reading. <laughs> no, they do Lego and uh, and and they read. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good way, a harsh way. It's not very very easy. But um, my son is crazy about uh, about reading, and also because I think he's. He sees me read all the time, and it was the same for me. You know, my father, he lost his job when I was uh, uh, 12 years old, and um, he was always sitting in the same place in the living room, smoking, and uh, he was like that. He was a little bit melancholic, but he had a lot of books around him. It was like a wall, and as a, a little girl, and my father, he had a great career, and he was... Uh, I was very impressed by, by my father and he was a very strict and a little bit arrogant uh, at the beginning, but then he changed. And so he had all those books and I was afraid to go and speak with him. So I used to take a book, to read the book, and then I went and said, oh, you know, I read this book. And ah, he was looking at me and said, ah, okay, what do you have to say about that book? And he respected me and he looked at me like I was... Uh, interesting so book was also something that uh, was very important for me because it helped me seduce my own father <laughs> and now let's turn the gaze to your uh, novel which is out in, in danish chanson douce or vogesan or the perfect nanny as it's always uh, also called in uh, in the states um le monde wrote uh, Chanson Douce captivates the reader with an astonishing force that stems from the masterly narration as well as the dry, clinical, precise writing. And so now we're turning to fiction for the last 20 minutes. And it's the story of the perfect nanny, really. A devoted woman who becomes little less than an angel in uh, Paul and Miriam's uh, everyday life. A young couple with two small children It's not an easy life in the big city. And if Miriam wants to resume her career as a lawyer, uh, if she wants to work, they need a nanny to take care of the children. And uh, one important thing for this young, uh, young hipster couple, they don't want an immigrant nanny. Why is that? Because Miriam, the, the mother, she's an immigrant herself. So she's... Um afraid that if she hires uh, an immigrant, and especially uh, an immigrant from Maghreb, um, there is go uh, it going to build a sort of intimacy between them, and um, that the other one will use the fact that they share the same uh, uh, religion or the same nationality to be more familiar with her, more intimate and she doesn't want that because at the beginning they have this idea that um, if they want to be good, uh, if she wants to be a good boss, she has to build a boundary between mm. her and the nanny. At the beginning she's like, I'm the boss, she's the nanny, she's going to work so I can work and that's it. No intimacy, no familiarity, no sharing of uh, our own life. But of course that's uh, a utopia, that's impossible. Yes because they find Louise and she becomes uh, indispensable, um, but she also gains more and more power in this family. Um, you shouldn't tell us everything that takes place in the novel because it's a thriller, really, and you should have surprises left if you read it. But um, why do you think Louise attaches herself so fiercely to this family? 
You know, Louise has been a nanny for her whole life. She's a woman from a lower class. She had a, a lot of difficulties in her life. Her uh, husband was abusive. Her, uh, her daughter left and uh, she has no, no news about her daughter. And she had a, a very difficult life. But as a nanny, she has always been respected, loved, needed. And she's, I think, fascinated by the bourgeoisie. For her whole life, she took care of uh, little children who were more bourgeois than herself. And in those families, everyone was telling her, oh, Louise, we love you. Oh, Louise, we need you. Oh, Louise, what would we do without you? And so that's probably the only place in her life where she feels that she has an importance, that she, that she matters for someone. And, um, you know, I, I had the idea that Louise was like a cup, a cup that you put every day on the table in a brutal way, and you don't see that inside the cup is broken, and one day you put the cup, and the cup breaks. Louise, for her whole life, she took care of children, and like many nannies, she took care of a child, she teach, she teach them how to walk, how to talk, she takes care of them when they are sick and she gets very much involved in the education of children and probably she loved them a lot. And then we tell them, we tell her, you have to go, thank you very much, it was very nice, but you have to go. And it's like a lot and a lot of breakups mm. and a love of uh, chagrin d'amour, I don't know how, mm. how to say. Yeah, love hurts. Love hurts. Yeah. And I think that when she arrives in the family, in the Massé family with Paul and, and Miriam, she thinks, I can't, I can't uh, experience that anymore. Mm. I want to belong to something, to someone, to a family. Mm. I need to stay here. I can't suffer this anymore or something very bad will, will happen. I think that she is at the end of yeah. her, her possibility. She's yeah. uh, completely broken inside. Yeah. Um, there's a great deal of sexism also here. Um, uh, Paul says to his wife, oh, oh, you want to resume working? Well, if that can make you happy, you know, he doesn't really see the need for her to go work. Yeah, but you know, there is this, um, this very weird thing when you become a mother, people su suppose that you're going to be happy. And actually everyone is telling you, wow, you're going to be a mother. You will never be alone again. You will never feel uh, sad again. And you will see, you'll be so fulfilled by the love you feel for your children. And then you're alone in your pyjamas, it's noon, and your child just vomited on your shoulder, and you feel alone, anxious, and you just want to go out and have a drink and speak with adults. That's the truth. Yes. But when you say that, or when you think that, you think maybe there's a problem with me. Mm. Maybe I'm a bad woman or a bad mother. Something is going wrong with me because I'm supposed to be happy. And if I'm not, it means that that the problem comes from me. So for me, it was very important to show that motherhood is not all about love and tenderness and happiness. 
It's something that was used, uh, as Elisabeth Badinter wrote it very well, it was used by the patriarchal system to tell us, why do you want to go out? You're so happy when you're at home, you're meant to be, mm -hmm. to be mother. And, um, you know, I'm not afraid to, to confess that uh, I've always been very bored with little children. <laughs> I hate playing with children. That's not something I like. I, I hate spending all my day changing diapers and making puree and going to mm. the park during the, the winter with a child who wants to do the toboggan 12 times. And you're like, you did it 10 times. Can we go home right now? Nah! And no, that's, that's very hard. But, and I think that we should be able to, to say that. And speaking of Virginia Woolf again, you know, Virginia Woolf wrote a, a text that is extraordinary, I think, for women. It's a text about what she called l'ange du foyer, the angel of the household. And the, the angel of the household, we all know her. That's this perfect woman who is so nice, who always sacrifices herself when she, she makes food and when she serves food, she will take the rest, the, what remains, and she will always sit in the place that is the, the coldest and the less, the less comfortable, and she will take care of others and always think of others uh, before thinking of, of herself. And in a certain way, we are all, as women, conditioned to be like this. Mm. And one day, I decided to kill this woman. <laughs> I killed her in front of my children, in front of my husband, and I told them, look at me, I'm going to kill her. And um, I know I'm going to disappoint you, and I'm probably going to disappoint myself. But after killing her, I must say that I was so free. Now I feel so free because I gave myself the right to be selfish. My husband never had to give to himself the right to be selfish because, uh, you know, when a man comes back from the work and he goes, like he sits, he brags bra a, a beer and he says, what are we having for dinner? I never did that in my life. And the day I killed this woman, I did that. And now I do that. I'm like, what are we having for dinner? Because I'm not doing anything tonight. Mm -hmm. I don't want to. And I don't want to take care of. So I think it's very important to kill the angel of the household to be a free woman. I think I should. <laughs> well, speaking of, of this, uh, I, I will re-quote uh, wonderful member of parliament who said two years ago, it is an innate mechanism that makes women prefer to stay at home with the children while the men work. That's the way it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a school teacher who says to Mariam, uh, well, it's a scourge of the century, it's le mal du siècle. Both parents want to work. They're devoured by the same ambi ambition whilst their children are left to themselves. Um, that is what she says, not to Paul, but to Mariam. Oh, why do both parents have to work? Why are you so self-absorbed? And what about the children? Uh, is that what French women are met with also from other women, from teachers, from... Uh... Yeah, and actually it happened to me. It's a yeah. real experience and I was uh, very happy and because I, I suppose that the woman who told me that read the book and uh, I'm very happy to think that uh, she saw what I think about her. But um, <laughs> apart from that, um, what I wanted to show is that you don't feel guilty only because of men, but many women make you feel guilty, sometimes consciously and in a mean way, and sometimes unconsciously. Mm. 
you know, for instance, my mother, my mother is a feminist, she's a doctor, and she has always told us you have to fight for your rights and everything. But when I'm here with you, and she calls me on the phone, and she says to me, where are the children? I say, ah, oh, but they are with their father. And she's like, they are alone. You left your children alone. And like, no, with their father, but it's the same. They are alone. So um, she always makes me feel very guilty when I'm away. Uh, she says, oh, your children must miss you so much. And when my husband is away, she always says, he must miss his children. Poor baby, he works so much. So I wanted to show that even in egalitarian societies, women have to deal with guilt much more than men. Mm. Everyone makes you feel that you should do more. You could do more. You could be a better mother. You could get more involved in your, your home and your children and uh, all that is domestic. And so for, for me, it was also very important to, to write about the household because people always tell you, when I get home, I get to a safe place. That's a place, and I get, I escape from the violence of the society, I escape from this brutality, and I come home and it's safe. But that's not true, because house, the household is a very violent place, and it's a political place. There's a war between adults and children, between men and women, between domestics and the servant and the, the masters and slave, what was the servant and, and bosses. So I think it's a political space. Who who cooks, who deals with the children, who has to stay home when the other one can go out and have a drink. So it's political household. It's not safe and tenderness and, uh, and love and all that. Oh, you're quite right. And most violence and most murders take place in, in the household. And in majority during Sunday, so be careful. On a Sunday? Yeah. In France, yes. Oh my God. So Sunday, I always go out. <laughs> In October 2012, in, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, two children, Lulu and Leo, um, six and two years old, were stabbed to death with kitchen knives by their nanny. Uh, upon returning home, the mother found them dying in the bathtub filled with blood. And uh, actually, the final, that was six years ago, but the final trial took place this spring, and the nanny was sentenced to life prison in May, uh, yeah, six months ago. And this story of the perfect nanny, when did you realize that that could be a great novel? You know, actually, I was already writing my book when I discovered this, um, this case. Wow. Um, I wrote the first version of, of the book, very different from this one, where the nanny was an immigrant and the, the boss, the equivalent of Miriam, was a white woman. And I wrote like 150 pages, and it was very boring, very bad. And I sent it to my publisher, who was, uh, I think, very embarrassed because he had to tell me that it was so wrong. So I was very depressed because I knew that I wanted to, to tell this story, but I didn't know how. And I discovered this case, and that's how I had the idea to begin with Murder of the Children, because it was a way to give um, a certain tension to the book. Because in the first version, it was just a nanny meeting with parents and then the day-to-day -day life of this family. 
But I must say that the life of a nanny is very repetitive. Mm. You do the same thing every every day. So after 100 pages of puree, diapers, and da da da, I was like me myself. I was writing and sleeping at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I was embarrassed by my my own uh, my own text. And when I had the idea of the murder, it was a, a way also for me to speak about something that um, is very important also for me. You know, I think that. Uh, When I looked at my son for the first time, my baby son, the first time I looked at him, I think that the first feeling that I felt was not love, it was fear, an extreme fear. I was terrified. And uh, this fear, I can still feel it now. And I think that I will, it's like a, a sentence to, to, for, for life. The moment you're a parent, you're afraid. And you have this fear, somewhere in the bottom of your heart. And I think that what is very strange is that it's very universal. We all know this fear, but we don't speak about it because we have to live with it. And you can't live with something if you speak about it all the time and you can't live with that fear. You have to do as if it doesn't exist. Mm. But we know that it's here. We know that All of you, one day, we had that thought, what if he was dead? We know that all of us, when there were little babies, we went into the room thinking... Every he's hour. Still, yeah, he's still breathing. Yes. So I wanted also to explore this fear. You know, my mother, she was a very anxious mother. And she was all the time saying, don't do that, you're going to die. Don't ride a bike, you're going to break your leg. Don't go there, you're going to get raped. Don't do this, don't do that. And I was very angry against her. I was like, I'm the, the hostage of her fear. Mm -hmm. Let me be free, let me do whatever I want. And when I became a mother, I understood exactly why she was doing that. So I say to my son, don't do this, you're going to, mm. to die in the exact same way. But I said to my mother, why didn't you tell me about that? Why didn't you explain to me? And when I wrote the book, uh, I wanted to say exactly what I told you before to the reader, please tell me I'm not alone. Tell me that you're afraid to. Tell me that sometimes as a mother, You felt this darkness, this solitude, this loneliness, because you don't know how to do. You think that your bad mother, that you're doing wrong, that you feel so useless. And, you, and I wanted to share that, that you're, we are not all superwomen. That's not true. We are not supermothers or superwomen. We do, we do our best and we do with what we have. And that's okay, I think. Mm. And the statistics show clearly that when you have children, uh, people, well, the part of the population that has children is more unhappy than those who don't have children. Aha! Yes. Exactly what I said. So that's the way it is. We are ridden by fear and uh, always frustrated, always afraid. Um, That's the way it is. I think this conference is very good for natality in Denmark. <laughs> it's going to <laughs> impulse. It will go further down. Um, English has been our lingua franca tonight, um, which is a bit ironic since we've also spoken about the francophonie and your role in the francophonie. But I think maybe we should end with a little homage, homage uh, to the French uh, language. 
So what we're going to do now to, to close it off is that we'll read the first page of Bogesa, uh, Chanson Douce. I read the first page in Danish, and then you read the first page in French. And so we'll hear finally the French language tonight, and that will be sort of the closing um, of this conference. Den lille dreng er død. Det tog kun få sekunder. Lægen forsikrede, at han ikke havde lidt. Han er blevet lagt i en grå ligepose, og lynlåsen er lynet op over den ledeløse krop, der lå på gulvet midt blandt alt legetøjet. Den lille pige var stadig i live, da ambulancefolkene kom. Hun har kæmpet som et vildt dyr. Man fandt tegn på kamp, hudrejster under hendes bløde negle. I ambulancen, som kørte hen på hospitalet, var hun urolig og begennemrystet af kramper. Øjnene stod ud, og hun kæmpede for at få luft. Hendes hals var fyldt med blod. Hendes lunger var perforeret, og hun havde slået hovedet voldsomt mod den blå kommode. Der blev taget fotos af gerningsstedet. Politiet indsamlede fingeraftryk og opmålte overfladerne i badeværelset og børneværelset. Prinsessetæppet på gulvet var gennemvædet af blod. Puslebordet var halvvejs væltet om kul. Legetøjet blev lagt i gennemsigtige poser, der blev forsejlet og taget med. Selv den blå kommode var bevismateriale. Moren var i chok. Det sagde ambulancefolkene. Politiet gentog det, og journalisterne skrev det. Da hun trådte ind i værelset, hvor hendes børn lå, udstødte hun et skrig, der kom dybt indefra som en hundulfs hylen. Væggene rystede. Natten sænkede sig over denne dag i maj. Le bébé est mort. Il a suffi de quelques secondes. Le médecin a assuré qu'il n'avait pas souffert. On l'a couché dans une housse grise et on a fait glisser la fermeture éclair sur le corps désarticulé qui flottait au milieu des jouets. La petite, elle, était encore vivante quand les secours sont arrivés. Elle s'est battue comme un fauve. On a retrouvé des traces de lutte, des morceaux de peau sous ses ongles mous. Dans l'ambulance qui la transportait à l'hôpital, elle était agitée, secouée de convulsions. Les yeux exorbités, elle semblait chercher de l'air. Sa gorge s'était emplie de sang. Ses poumons étaient perforés et sa tête avait violemment heurté la commode bleue. On a photographié la scène de crime. La police a relevé des empreintes et mesuré la superficie de la salle de bain et de la chambre d'enfant. Au sol, le tapis de princesse était imbibé de sang. La table allongée était à moitié renversée. Les jouets ont été emportés dans des sacs transparents et mis sous scellés. Même la commode bleue servira au procès. La mère était en état de choc. C'est ce qu'ont dit les pompiers, ce qu'ont répété les policiers, ce qu'ont écrit les journalistes. En entrant dans la chambre où gisaient ses enfants, elle a poussé un cri. Un cri des profondeurs, un hurlement de louve. Les murs en ont tremblé. La nuit s'est abattue sur cette journée de mai. Merci. Merci du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.